Welcome to the Shack 15 Conversations podcast, where we invite founders, innovators, and changemakers to share ideas with the community, speak to the experience of building their businesses, and unlock some of the hard-earned wisdom collected along the way. In this episode, we'll join our moderator, Elizabeth Bagley, Director of Education with Project Drawdown and former Director of Sustainability with the California Academy of Sciences. Elizabeth will lead us in conversation on the ongoing revolution in corporate sustainability, joined by the pioneers who are actively driving public and private policy within the local institutions we know and trust. On this all-female panel, we'll welcome Laura Franceschini, leading global sustainability strategy and operations with Google, Christina Nicholson, former Director of Sustainable Innovation with GAP, and Debbie Raffel, Director of San Francisco Department of the Environment. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Red, and the, um, the whole team at Shack 15. We are so honored to be here tonight. We, um, we're sorry we can't be in person with you, but we are just thrilled that you all signed on. So thanks for taking the time to join us and to think about sustainability. So um, as Red said, I'm the director of Drawdown Learn at Project Drawdown, and I have had the immense pleasure of getting to know our three panelists over the years, and it is my incredible pleasure to get to introduce you and uh, give you, you an opportunity to get to know them a little bit more. So we're going to start off by asking uh, each panelist to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her sustainability journey. So I'm going to kick it off with Debbie. Why don't you uh, tell us who you are and a little bit about your sustainability journey? Absolutely. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you, Red. Thank you, Shaq15. I too wish with all my heart that we were at that gorgeous fairy building upstairs all together and sharing some wine and hors d'oeuvres. Um, so we'll just have to imagine that right now. Um, so Debbie Raffel is my name. Ah, there's Laura. Yay. Hi, Laura. And uh, I am the director of San Francisco's Department of Environment. So not every city has a Department of Environment, but San Francisco does. Uh, we have about 100 people in the department, and we work on a lot of different issues around sustainability from climate change to zero waste, toxics reduction, electric vehicles, uh, school education, lots of different elements. And how did I land that ideal job? Uh, I can't imagine a better place to, to work, frankly. Um, and I started out my life uh, in college thinking that I was going to be a professor and I was gonna do research, I love science, I'm a complete science nerd, and I wanted to be a professor just like my dad, who's a physicist. I didn't wanna be a physicist, but I was gonna be a biologist. I went straight from undergrad to a PhD program and realized, oh my gosh, I don't actually wanna do science, I wanna use science, and I wanna use science to heal the planet. So that was quite an awakening I had in my 20s, and I spent my 20s and early 30s trying to figure out how do I use science? And I uh, landed uh, a job with the city of Santa Monica, a temporary job, and I found my place, and my place is government, and specifically local government. I've worked at the state level. Uh, I, I believe in the power of democracy. I believe in civil service and public service, and I believe in the power of science. So putting all those things together in one place has been my uh, perfect honor to be uh, a public servant here in the city and county of San Francisco. 
Thanks so much, Debbie, for sharing your journey. Christina, how about you? We'd love to hear about your journey. Sure. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Shaq15. I'm really blessed and honored to be on this panel um, with these amazing women. My journey started with a bit more of a traditional business background. Actually, I started my career in finance, moved over to marketing, e-commerce, rode the, the first dot-com wave here in the Bay Area, uh, moved into some business development, and then frankly said, you know what, I need more. So I went back to school to study design, sustainable design specifically at Berkeley. And at the time, I was working at Williams-Sonoma Pottery Barn in West Elm. And as it's often said, there's a small group of passionate people that really can create some significant change. And so I convened a small group of passionate people at Williams-Sonoma, and we developed a strategy, shopped it with the executives, and it became uh, my role. And I spent several years uh, developing some, some goals that were eventually made public and that Williams-Sonoma Pottery Barn in West Elm are continuing to deliver on. A friend of mine called from down the street at the Gap and said, hey, we already have these goals. Would you like to lead a global team to deliver on them? And they were pretty aggressive and pretty ambitious. And so um, I've spent the past four years actually working on leading a global team to deliver on GHG, GHG emissions reduction goals, waste goals, um, chemical reduction goals, and water goals um, in the clothes that that you're wearing um, potentially. And um, most recently, I actually have embarked on a consulting gig by myself. So I have actually been working with several different companies as, um, as COVID hit. So super excited to be here and happy to share anything and everything I know. Thank you so much, Christina. I am so, um, so grateful to hear about the different, the different pathways that we all take. Um, we're going to hold off on Laura for a second um, for technical, technical hiccups. And uh, we're going to move on to another question. Uh, going back to a little bit of what Christina said around sustainability goals and like really figuring out how do we, as uh, people who work within these complex systems, how do we, you know, we have many of our companies have sustainability goals and many of those sustainability goals have significantly shifted, especially in the last few months, given the, the current state of the pandemic and, and where the world's at. So, um, Christina, I would love to hear from you about how uh, COVID-19 has changed the way that you think about sustainability and kind of goals in general. And then we'll come back to Laura and get her journey. Sure, absolutely. So, um, so I'd say that um, what I'm seeing across the organizations that I'm working with is it's industry by industry. I think one of the key headlines is that sustainability is critically important. I think part of the reason we're here is because sustainability wasn't um, central to a lot of organizations. Um, so what I've seen is just some investment shifts. I think in some organizations, they've had to make some pretty tough decisions and um, furlough and layoff staff. Um, I've seen other organizations hold the course and, um, but actually reduce um, some of the budget. Um, so, for example, really prioritizing what is it that we can drive and change in the COVID-19 environment. Um, I think one of the key things I've seen in apparel, for example, is the, the shift towards the mask demand and really shifting supply chains immediately to um, outfitting all of us around the globe with, with masks and doing it in a sustainable way, um, not only from um, an environmental perspective, but a human rights perspective. I think safety is uh, paramount. 
I think one of the other things that I've seen, and I'm not sure if um, people are taking news breaks, I think it's a good idea to do so. But I think one of the things I've noticed is that uh, a lot of companies, um, retail specifically, is on kind of the cutting edge and asking for regulation around safety. So I think roles within organizations are changing as well, whereas Traditionally, we've asked for less regulation in some of the industries. I think now we're seeing that maybe some um, governmental guidance um, could be helpful and useful. And maybe Debbie could talk a little bit about that when she talks about what she's seeing um, in San Francisco. So, um, so yeah, that's how I'd answer that question. I think it depends. Um, it's by industry, but um, I'm seeing some leadership. I'm seeing um, investment shifts um, and, and worst-case scenarios, uh, budget cuts. Oh, thanks so much, Christina. Hey, Laura, we're so glad you're here. Can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah, you're here. So, Laura, we're going to bounce to you, and we would love to hear your sustainability journey. Welcome. Perfect. Wonderful. Um, apologies for the technical difficulties. Uh, yeah, so in terms of my sustainability journey, uh, I've been working in the corporate sustainability space for the vast majority of my career. Um, I started out uh, having a, a core interest in environmental topics and really being keen to work in the nonprofit or the multilateral institution space, such as like the, the UN or for NGOs. And I kind of took a little career journey where I worked at a few NGOs and um, worked abroad in, in India, um, but really quickly started realizing that a lot of the key environmental issues that society was facing and a lot of the opportunity for change rested in the corporate sector. And so that really ignited my interest to move into the corporate sector and explore the um, the, the opportunity of, of a, not at the time it wasn't meant to be a career choice, but what if it's, at the time it was just, I took an internship at a company helping them to reduce the environmental impact of their operations and uh, ended up loving it and um, was able to kind of get into that um, industry a bit early. And so most of my career has been in that space, working both for large multilateral companies like, um, sorry, large multinational companies like Google, where I am today, as well as Stantec, um, one of the top 10 uh, design engineering firms in the world, as well as for um, a large uh, retailer and um, doing some sort of short stints for a number of different types of organizations, including nonprofits and academia. Um, I'm now at Google on the sustainability strategy and operations team. I've been here for about five years. I started out on the data center sustainability team, and now I'm on our, our somewhat newly formed global sustainability strategy and operations team. So we work cross-functionally across uh, the company and I have exposure to a lot of different types of projects. Thank you so much, Laura. Uh, Debbie, I'm going to throw the same question that I threw at Christina your way. Laura, it's coming to you soon. But uh, the question, just as a reminder, is um, how have the sustainability goals that you have for the Department of the Environment changed over the years and specifically as it relates to COVID-19? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Uh, and San Francisco has never shied away from bold goals. We have very, very aggressive climate goals for our city, zero waste, 100% renewable energy. So that's not just uh, having 100% renewable electricity, but that's getting off of all fossil fuels. That's getting off of diesel and gasoline and natural gas, electrifying everything. And of course, uh, getting people out of cars, 80% of trips in sustainable modes and then sequestering carbon through natural systems using our compost, using green spaces, and supporting uh, sustainable agriculture. So those are our bold goals, and those haven't changed because of COVID. What has changed 
is the way we are looking at our strategies that we want to employ to get there. It feels to me that what this virus has done is it's gone straight at all of society's weakest points and it's completely highlighted all the inequities whether and all the cracks whether it's having leaders in Washington that don't believe in science to unequal health care uh, to people who don't have act, who have to leave the house to work and and are vulnerable in terms of their own rent and their and their stability in housing it's it's amplified everything and so for us we're in the middle of redoing our climate action plan which we will codify bring to the board of supervisors and we have shifted to take a look at those strategies to get us to those same goals but using four lenses and those lenses have been very much informed by the pandemic. So one of them is of course equity and racial equity, leading with race, asking who benefits, who is burdened by each strategy, each solution we're looking at. The second is health. Uh, it's very clear to us that the people in San Francisco who are suffering most from COVID-19 are the exact same people who suffer the most from asthma and from heat uh, vulnerability. The third is housing. We have to make housing an environmental imperative housing has to be shelter housing has to be an environmental imperative and the the fourth is resiliency the fact that that we need a san francisco that can withstand um breaks in supply chains that can suspend that can um withstand energy cuts like when the the power goes off power safety shut off so all of those strategies to get us those goals are the same what has really shifted in the pandemic is how we're getting there and what we're gonna prioritize first based on the lessons of COVID. Thanks so much for sharing that, Debbie. I think just a great, like to put another point on a point you made that, you know, climate solutions and sustainability solutions writ large often and should have co-benefits, right? And we should think about how can we make sure that it's not just um, a solution just for climate, but it's actually a solution that helps build a more resilient community and helps uh, with health and biodiversity and with racial equity. So thank you so much uh, yeah. for being a leader in that space, Debbie. And I just want to say to that point, just really quick, that an example of we're just putting a, a policy, we've introduced it at the Board of Supervisors under Supervisor Mandelman to ban natural gas in all new construction. And when you look through what you just said, those lenses, what that does is it creates housing that is affordable and healthy and good for the environment. So all of those things are equally as important. Thank you, Debbie. Laura, how about you? What's, uh, what, is, what do the sustainability goals at Google look like in uh, the era of COVID-19? Sure. Uh, so I echo a bit of what Debbie just said. I mean, we have five high-level strategic pillars of sustainability. And those haven't uh, changed uh, due to COVID. So we look at data center efficiency, renewable energy, um, in in um, sustainable workplaces, and then how to advance sustainability through technology. I'd say what has been an impact in terms of environmental sustainability. Obviously, on on the social side, we have we have a lot of commitments around things like affordable housing and racial racial equity, and a lot of that has been elevated due to COVID. There's also been a lot of focus on, you know, in building improved to tools for COVID and, and enabling more um, ready access to information on COVID in Google search and Google maps. So that's the social side, which um, I represent um, the environmental side. So I'll, I'll speak to that. I'd say that the, some of the impacts that 
we've seen it's just really been more of a, a shift in focus. Um, if anything, COVID is showing us that, you know, sustainability is more important than ever. The um, risks of climate change are perhaps more imminent than we even thought before. And now we're getting this opportunity to really see what that would look like, like huge cultural and societal shifts and, and just like all of the um, impacts down the value chain that that, that, that has. We have a lot of offices around the world, so you know one shift has been that we we've put a strong focus on um, sustainable building design, construction, and operations, and a lot of that work is on hold right now because all of our offices are naturally closed for the most part. Um, data center efficiency has actually been more important than ever because there's so there's an upsurge in people using our tools um, and just using technology in general around the world in this moment. So there's been a lot of focus on that in terms of just operational efficiency and ensuring that, that our data centers are efficient as ever. And uh, uh, some of our core products like Google Google Meet, which is a, a video conferencing app, there's there's obviously been you know an upsurge in use of those apps across the world and, and recognition that, um, you know, business travel perhaps will never go back to what we had because virtual meetings in a lot of cases can be um, just as effective. So I'd say there's there's been a lot of focus on that, like in terms of our products and how they can be helping people in this in this moment. One one last thing I'll just mention is that Google Maps is one of our flagship products and obviously people aren't really going anywhere. So they're not really using maps in the same way. So rather than some of our efforts, which has been more around um, commuting uh, and just figuring out how to build certain sustainability features into Google Maps. Um, we're now focusing on things like our, like uh, visibility of testing sites and whether or not sites are open during COVID. And you have Google Classroom, which I navigated for my two sons. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> All of the tools that we're using that we didn't use before, right? Or that we used yeah, to some yeah. extent, but now it's like, woo, crash course in that. So. Yeah, thanks so much, Laura, for those insights. So you might have noticed to all the all the folks on the on the call that we don't all have the word sustainability in our title. And we think that it's actually kind of important for us to touch on that a moment. So, you know, sustainability can and, and potentially should and actually really should fit into lots of different places within our organizations. And you might work on sustainability but not have sustainability in your title. So I'd love to ask the panelists, you know, where does sustainability fit within the organization you're part of kind of who do you report to what does that reporting structure look like what does your team look like you know what do your what does your leadership wish uh, what do you wish they knew about your work so we can get kind of a sense of the structure of sustainability with your organization so I'm going to toss this one to Christina all right well I'm going to talk generally because I've got some experience based on several organizations I work with as well as um, where I have worked in the past so one key headline here is um, leadership has to be bought in and, and resources have to be established in order to at least launch a sustainability program within an organization. Um, where I ultimately believe uh, sustainability should end up is embedded within the organization. So perhaps there might be work uh, related to sustainability that becomes part of your everybody in the organization's goals. Um, it should be what your performance is based on. It should be actually, frankly, tied to pay. And I, I believe that all the way at the executive level through to frontline people working in retail stores and interacting with customers. We're not there yet, um, but I think that, that's the ultimate vision of really embedding and driving sustainability into our system, our corporate system, as well as into society. So with that, 
when an organization is new, it's imperative. Sustainability is new. It's a new topic. It's something that a, an organization is getting their head and heart around. I would say um, should report right into a senior level executive, somebody that is sitting in those meetings with the CEO, CMO, COO. So um, when I first launched sustainability at Williams-Sonoma, I reported directly into the president who had a seat at, and she's now actually the, the CEO of Williams-Sonoma Pottery Barn in West Elm. And so I think direct line to, uh, to leadership to move quickly where you need to move quickly and influence um, and answer questions and have that direct line of communication is key. Um, as the, the, the topic matured within Williams-Sonoma, I moved over into sourcing and supply chains where the rubber meets the road. Um, it's, it's basically where a lot of the impact happens um, where products are produced. Um, so I, I think it's a good fit there as well. Um, at GAP, it's a bigger organization. It's a bit more embedded. Um, sustainability um, is something that the Fishers, the founders, actually truly believe in. So we have board-level visibility. Um, so we actually uh, reported directly into the CEO there as well, primarily because of the importance. Um, in some smaller organizations, again, it can sit um, – in sourcing and supply chain. Um, I've seen it in certain organizations within legal if you're just getting started and compliance is a, is a first step for you. Um, but regardless, it has to be a priority at the C-suite level, I believe, and have visibility there um, minimum on a monthly basis. Thanks, Christina. Laura, what does it look like at Google from your vantage point? Interesting. Okay, <laughs> apologies. Uh, yeah, I echo a lot of what Christina just said, uh, definitely, I think exec executive uh, visibility is incredibly important and having um, somewhat direct lines of reporting into executives is important and that ultimately where we eventually need to go is that it needs to be um, very embedded into the business and factored into consideration for things like compensation across the board, not just executive compensation, but compensation at all levels. Um, I think that the ultimate structure, uh, organizational structure that works best is pretty organizational dependent. Um, I've worked at a number of companies in this function and, and you know, just being in the industry for a while, I've, I've heard of many different organizational structures and ultimately it's whatever works best uh, given how your organization is structured and where the influence lies and like where the, where the incentives lie. Um, so at Google, we have a very matrix cross-functional organizational structure in general. We're a fairly flat organization for such a large global company with many, many different um, lines of business and even different companies under the umbrella of Alphabet. Um, so we do have a pretty uh, sort of like a spoken hub model, perhaps. Um, we have uh, sustainability teams embedded in a lot of business units as well as um, product areas and operational units. So for example, our real estate team and our data center team have their own sustainability teams. On the product side, different product areas like maps or search have people taking responsibility for sustainability. And then in the support teams like legal policy, marketing, comms, finance, et cetera, we also have sustainability leads or teams in each of those areas working on initiatives specific to those, um, to those uh, departments. And then our team, uh, the sustainability strategy team, we work cross-functionally across all of those various teams to create um, alignment on things like prioritization and targets and really to act as the central hub for sustainability across Google um, and to, um, in a lot of cases, uh, be that tie into the executive team and also externally um, with a lot of uh, 
a lot of external partners, although that, that um, engagement with external partners is, is common across many of the teams. Um, so I think for us, uh, this structure works well and, and it, it took a while to sort of figure out this process. There was many different iterations of the, the sort of org structure of sustainability at Google over the past decade or so. And this is working really well uh, for us now. And I feel like it gives us the visibility that we need and enables us to um, have people focused on specific topic areas um, embedded in business units, but also have um, a, a, enough collaboration cross-functionally across all of those. Um. Thanks, Laura. How about you, Debbie? Yeah, wow. I, all I can say is when I listen to Laura and all of the people who believe that sustainability is their mission in all these different factions, that's so impressive. Um, and good for Google for, for doing that over the years. And I just want to also respond to something that Christina said when she talked about her own story about creating the structure for sustainability where it didn't exist. I think that not every institution is going to be as uh, well developed as Google. And of course, Google wasn't always that way. And what it takes is that champion because there may be times when the C-suite is not engaged and, uh, and yet never underestimate what some champions can do if they understand the language. And clearly, Christina, you were able to do that. Uh, in San Francisco, we are a little bit if I can say this, dare I say this, the Google of local governments in the sense that we have a very long history of being uh, supportive of environment and sustainability. And so if you come in 2020 and look at the structure in San Francisco, what you will see is very different than it would have been 10 years ago. So what you will see today is that I lead a department whose name is Environment, Department of Environment. I'm the director of that. Uh, I report directly to the mayor, Mayor London Breed. So I am a political appointee. Uh, we have a commission on the environment who I also report to. So there are many uh, avenues I have to go uh, get things done, whether it's directly to the mayor, to the board of supervisors, or to the commission. And yet also what we have is in our departments, we have more and more sustainability leads, people who actually do have sustainability in their titles. So in our Public Utilities Commission, in our airport, in um, parks, in Rec and Park, uh, all of, in the port, all of those departments now have individuals where sustainability is actually in their title. And that speaks volumes to the commitment that our city has to get things done and understanding that it's not enough to have this standalone entity, if we're the only ones thinking about environment and sustainability, we'll never get anything done. We're too small and too distant. You need to have people within the structure. And even if those people don't have sustainability in their title, they're thinking about it and they're talking about it and they're bringing up ideas that can get um, taken up because they make sense for lots of reasons. And they bring uh, great pride to people who care about their work. So uh, should it be separate or embedded? I think it's an and, not an or. I think the best is to have a separate entity that can be thinking overarching and can be developing policy and then having the expertise embedded in departments where they know their business the best and they understand where the barriers are actually overcomable and maybe it's just inertia versus, hey, this is fundamental. 
you want sustainability here, you want this environmental benefit here, you're going to have to unpeel the onion a little bit. Whereas I won't know that from the outside. So it's the power of both, I think, to lead to change. Thanks so much for those thoughtful responses. I'm just going to um, shift a little bit to a question that came in that relates to this larger question we've been talking about. And the question is looking at are looking for examples of what sustainability might look like when it's tied into uh, employees' jobs and performance throughout different levels and positions. And I'd love to hear a little bit more, you know, that's getting a little into the brass tacks of like, so how do you actually get this to work? How do you actually hold people and the organization accountable? How do you measure success? I'd love some insights about what that, what that has looked like uh, and potentially does look like in your um, organizations. I'm going to put it on you, Christina, first. We are all very okay. polite. <laughs> Great. Um, so I would say just the practical tactical would be um, starting with, uh, you know, the organizational uh, goals. Um, for Gap Inc., for example, um, and it sounds to some degree similar to Google, and I'd love to hear from Laura on this, is we have the Inc. goals. And then we have a sustainability, central sustainability organization that works across functions and across brands and across business units to work to embed, to deliver those goals within. And the way that we were successful is actually um, leaders within the organizations that were critical to delivering on, for example, our GHG emissions reduction goal actually would write those into their personal goals where they would be weighted and their compensation would be uh, impacted if it wasn't delivered upon. And so there was some, um, you know, visionary approach at the central part of the sustainability organization. But when it really came down to it is we depend on the business units that are signing the contracts and actually delivering on um, what type of energy or um, delivering on signing on the dotted line for the renewable energy contract. For example, it wasn't necessarily a sustainability organization. So it's through, just simply put, annual goals and compensation review um, is how we delivered at GAP anyway. I'm going to move on to Debbie. I'm going to start with you by asking, what can people do within their organizations, within their companies, within their local governments to really support sustainability efforts? And another way to look at it could be, you know, what could we ask everybody on this call to do tomorrow? What could be someone's next step? All right, here's, here's my ask. Everyone who's listening in on this call, I want you to be religious with your green bin. I want you to rethink totally what you are throwing away. I want you to shop your refrigerator and not waste some food. And I want to make sure that every scrap of food that you cannot use and every coffee filter, I'm making a lot of coffee these days at home, so every coffee filter, everything you do goes into that green bin. And here's why. And, and it's, uh, it's multifaceted. There's so many reasons here that hopefully by the end of you hear me hearing this, you will be transformed into the most amazing composter green bin user. Every time you take a banana peel and you put it in your black bin instead of your green bin, it's going to the landfill. When it goes to the landfill, it decomposes and emits methane. Now, landfills can collect methane, but nowhere near 100%. So some of that methane is leaking out. That methane is about 86 times more potent at capturing heat than carbon dioxide. So every banana peel that you throw away in the black bin is actually 86 times worse for climate change than driving that equivalent of your car. 
Now, if you do the right thing, if you put it in your green bin, then that green bin is going out to our compost facility where it's made into organic compost, where then it goes onto agricultural lands and does magic. It transforms the health of the soil so that you have increased productivity. It actually allows the soil to absorb carbon. And we've done calculations, the University of California has done calculations that said if we spread compost on 5% of our agriculture and rangelands in California, 5%, we can sequester 30% of our overall emissions in this state. So serious numbers here, it all adds up. And it also increases water holding capacity and it's also incredibly circular because your banana peel is becoming the food or the wine that you ingest. So if I could say one thing, do now that you maybe only did a little bit, make sure that there is nothing organic, nothing that could decompose in your black bin, no cardboard, no old, um, paper towels, you know, nothing that actually came from organic material. It all needs to go in the green bin. So please do that. And please, my second thing is don't get back in your cars. You know, when, when you need to go back to work, get an e-bike, find a way if you're, you know, transit with the windows open, I think, you know, we're going to find that there's a lot of countries who have not shut down transit. So we need to support our transit systems. We need to get on bicycles. We need to figure out ways of moving around without getting back into cars. So those are my two big messages. Awesome, Debbie. So there's, you know, not everybody is fortunate enough to live in San Francisco with the incredible compost system that we have in place. And so for those people, um, you know, there's other places for them to start. One is to work with the local government to create curbside composting, right? So it's actually absolutely a doable policy that we can put into place and to work with local farmers to take the compost to regenerate the soil. So for those of you who don't have uh you know, who aren't in San Francisco don't have the incredible green bin. That's one place to start. Um, and you don't, you know, it's not a, a switch you flip overnight. I mean, Debbie could talk to us about the um, the path to compost and and how, you know, the different hurdles to overcome and all of that. But um, I would say don't despair for the folks in the chat box who are you know wishing they were in San Francisco and had a relatively turnkey solution. There are lots and lots of um, of approaches to get us to that kind of solution. So thanks for that, yes. Debbie. And it's not just San Francisco. I mean, Alameda County, Santa, I mean, every Bay Area County, you have that ability to do that. And yes, if you don't, that is an amazing thing you can do. Thank you, Elizabeth. You can, the world is run by those who show up, show up and make sure you get a compost program. I love it. And then moving beyond individual action, right, to this collective action, right? We can, we can get worm bins in our kitchens if we want to. That's a great individual action, but moving to that collective action where everybody benefits. So thanks, Debbie, for that great, um, that great leadership. Laura, how about you? Um, what can people do from your vantage point uh, within their companies, within their communities to really support sustainability efforts? What is your ask of all the people on the call tonight? Yeah, I think this is just such a fan, fantastic question. And it really gets back to what we were speaking about earlier in terms of, you know, how sustainability is, is actually embedded in the business and Christina's point that ultimately it needs to be embedded, you know, fully across the business and, and in every unit and, and taken into consideration by every employee. So that's, that's effectively my answer. I feel like every, every job is a sustainability job. And no matter what your role is, even if, you know, if you're in accounting, if you're in legal, if you're in finance, if you're, you know, um, working in on site, um, you're driving a, a fleet vehicle, 
you know, there's always something that you can do to have an impact on sustainability. And in fact, uh, like sustainability teams by nature and design are, are usually quite small and there's limited capacity to what they can do themselves. And everything that we do, we do in partnership with uh, our partner team. So there's pretty much nothing that we can implement without having people within a business unit willing to put in the effort to actually make something happen, to like help develop a policy, to help implement a policy, um, to help tell us what the right policy would be because they have exposure to the day-to-day -day operations of that, of that business unit. So everything we do is in partnership with, um, with teams across the organization. Uh, we really can't do anything without you. So be one of those partners to the sustainability team. If there is a sustainability team at your company, um, see if there's something you can help with chances are there probably is if not um, take initiative on your own or do both of those things um, and just really look for opportunity um, with everything you do if you're developing a process if you're ordering supplies if you're um, developing a strategy for your organization or just implementing something like chances are there's some variability in what you're doing and there's something in that that has an impact on sustainability well, thanks so much, Laura. I mean, I think being problem solvers with a sustainability lens, right? We can all have a, a lens towards sustainability as we do whatever role we have in our organizations and in our communities. Thanks so much, Laura. Christina, how about you? What's your ask of all the people on the call tonight? Mine's going to be a little bit broader. I think as, as um, some of our calendars have slowed down with um, lack of travel and with um, more time at home, um, I just offer get really curious, get educated. Um, this is a big, important topic, probably one of the biggest of our time. And I would say um, when things do start to open up, have, have done that, that learning and have done a personal audit. What, what can you shift? I love what Debbie said is think about the compost, think about the green bin, um, think about alternative modes of transportation, maybe get in shape, ride a bike um, if you can. Um, but how do, how do we take what we're doing as the world has slowed down and we've all paused to get curious, get educated, get active and, and do that personal audit. It's, it, starts, it starts with each heart and each individual and each spirit. I'm going to be frank with you, and that may sound a little bit woo-woo, but it does. And um, we all have to come together in the collective to think differently. Yes, you see our faces here. We've led sustainability in large organizations um, for large municipalities, um, but it actually started right at home. And so what better way um, during this time when we, when we do have a little bit more time with loved ones, family, and your close pod friends potentially um, to have that conversation and get curious and get educated and, and really do that personal audit. What can you shift? Because one, one drop ripples across a pond. Uh, thanks for those insights, Christina. I'm just going to add mine here because I, you know, I, I have an ask for everybody too. And my ask is to really focus on solutions. That's one of the things that I'm really grateful to focus on at an organization like Project Drawdown that, you know, there are so many solutions to climate um, already in our hands today that we can be working towards. We already heard from our panelists some of those solutions and find the solution that gets you excited and, and work on it, either in your own home, in your community, within your business and, and go from there. You know, start, take that first step, find out where, you know, what, what is that next step you wanna take and then just keep going and inspire other people along the way. So I, uh, that's, that's my ask of you tonight. And um, before we turn over to the Q&A, which thank you everybody for 
putting loads of fabulous questions in the Q&A. Feel free to add those. We're going to get to those in just a couple of minutes. Um, you know, the we hear a lot, there's a lot of uh, angst and negativity around the pandemic and just all of the changes and shifts that we've had to endure, but there are also benefits, right? And so I'd love to hear from each of you about what's your favorite benefit that has emerged as a result of the pandemic. So Laura, why don't you start us off? What's your favorite benefit? Sure. Uh, I think it, it speaks a bit to what uh, Christina just mentioned, where um, obviously, like it's highly dependent on your your life situation and your your economic and employment situation. But for some of us that are perhaps you know still still employed and still fortunate enough to have um, access to healthcare and and not necessarily be dealing with those types of struggles related to COVID, I think the additional sort of space and time with yourself and in your home and sort of outside of sort of the busyness of life uh, that sort of pause like I've heard I've heard COVID called the great pause which I think is a really great way of of illustrating um, this reality uh, can create some space and time to you know self-reflect self-educate and really kind of reevaluate things like um, personal life priorities professional priorities and just like really give that opportunity to um, be a bit more um, thoughtful I guess when the pause unpauses and society returns to its busy, crazy, frenetic state that, as we all know, many of our lives tend to follow. Uh, thank you so much, Laura. How about you, Christina? What are some of the benefits you see coming out of the pandemic? I think I love what Laura said about the great pause and about how it, it's leaving time for, for a lot of reflection. And I think on the other side of the pan pandemic, um, when things start to open up, I would hope that folks remain anchored in that because we're going to need a new kind of leadership to deliver, I think, on some of these tough sustainability um, priorities as well as, um, I think, um, address a lot of the racial inequity, um, the financial inequity. And so I think taking this pause and really reflecting, I'm personally reflecting on what type of leader I want to come out of this pandemic as, for example, and how do I get myself myself educated in these areas outside of just the environment so that I'm able to contribute in my community, um, in the businesses where I work um, at a much higher level. Um, so I would just say that um, my hope is that more of us are doing that, is really getting ourselves engaged, educated, and coming um, coming to the table with, with, with that higher standard. Thanks so much, Christina. Debbie, what are some of the benefits that you're feeling coming out of COVID-19? Yeah, those are, that was beautifully put, my fellow panelists. That was really beautiful. My, my favorite benefit from this is the kindness to strangers that I'm seeing. I'm seeing so many thank yous to people who work in the grocery store. Never heard that before. I'm seeing people help each other get groceries themselves and get their needs met. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful end product of a pandemic. And I and just like Christina says, I hope that it's a, a new muscle memory. I, I like to think of it as a we're building muscle memory, hopefully through this pandemic. And that muscle memory will serve us well when it's over and we will be kind to strangers we will have a pause and be more reflective and we will care more deeply about our environment. 
Oh my goodness. Thank you so much panelists. We're going to pop into some of the questions and to the uh, attendees, please feel free to use the Q&A feature to uh, pop your questions in and I'm going to do my best to get um, to get to as many as we can. Uh, there was a question that I'm having trouble finding, but I'm just going to pretend like I can remember it. Uh, and it was specifically for Christina about the shift in kind of the decline in clothing sales and the increase in masks and whether or not you have anything to say with that. I, I'm not sure that the mask sales can compete with the decline of retail, but do you have any insights to share with us? Well, um, what I, what I saw uh, at Gap was just uh, strong relationships with our suppliers and their quick willingness and ability to shift to um, start developing, designing and delivering masks. Um, I'll say there were some bumps related to um, current uh, current sales orders, and so I'll say that you know uh, Gap has always been um, their vendors uh, and suppliers of Gap Inc. product have been like close partners, and so I'd say that the, the pivot was easy. Um, I would say that the impact to sales um, was dramatic. So. We had orders out, orders placed, orders ready to ship, and um, and gap followed through, which is really important from an equity standpoint, a finance standpoint, and a caring for workers standpoint. So where we could, we shifted some of that that demand and those um, those sales, um, but certainly um, it was tough on the business, very tough on the business. Um, so quick shift, tough on the business. No, um, jean jackets. Um, are priced differently than, than face masks. Jean jackets for the win. Both Christina and I are <laughs> Sorry, Debbie and Laura, next time we'll all wear jean jackets. <laughs> um, I, I love this. So there's a, another question coming through about how would someone with a master's degree in a completely unrelated field, let's just imagine cello performance, I'm making it up, but how might someone with an unrelated master's degree um, get into a position in sustainability. I'd love to hear some examples of ways that you've hired people in or you've worked with people uh, with, you know, seemingly unrelated degrees. Who wants to take this one first? Great, Debbie, go for it. So I will just say, I do not care what your education is in. I don't care. I don't care if you have a master's. I don't care what college you went to. I don't even know your GPA. All I care about is one thing. Did you take initiative where you were? Did you try things out and learn from them? And do you have a passion for the environment? And how can you show me you have it? So I could care less what, do not, your education, just do not even worry about it. But what I do wanna see is that whatever job you were in, that you took sustainability to heart there, that you tried something, you don't have to be successful at it, but you tried it and you learned. And then the other thing I would just say on that is be willing to go backwards a little in your pay and your status so you go forward fast. This is one thing I invite people who, who come to my department and are kind of shocked at the lower pay scale of the public sector. I said, look, relax on that because after two years here, you will be able to leapfrog to uh, within your field because you have that credibility. Yeah, I, I agree with everything uh, Debbie, Debbie just said. I, I definitely think that um, what's most important is, is individual personality traits. Like, you know, do you take initiative? Um, do you have a can-do attitude? Are you someone that can um, 
lead through influence. I mean, everything that we do in, in a corporate sustainability department is leading through influence. You need to get people to want to help you and want to work with you because ultimately you don't have a ton of authority. Like no one really reports to you directly for the most part. We have cross-functional dotted line relationships with most of our teams, if at all. And so we really need to ensure that we work to understand their business needs and their priorities and, and what's important to them and then figure out areas of mutual benefit where we can work together. So, so much of it is about all the soft skills, to be honest, it's stakeholder engagement, it's uh, communication skills, both written and verbally, it's, um, you know, giving, giving a lot of presentations, um, negotiating, um, uh, figuring out how to get uh, people aligned that might be coming from different um, perspectives. Um, so really, that's, that's actually the day to day, the day to day isn't, isn't like having some deep topical expertise in a particular topic, at least not for the cross-functional nature of the work that, that our team does, but that, that uh, replicates in, in a lot of our partner teams as well. And I'd say that I have met sustainability professionals throughout my career with every possible background you can imagine, even the most far-fetched degree and prior work experience that you would think has absolutely no relation to sustainability. I've met someone working in sustainability that has that background. So again, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what, what um, has happened, what your license looks like to date, it matters where you want it to go and just working towards making that happen. Do you have anything to add? And I don't have anything. No, I mean, they no. covered it. Both, they did a yeah, great they job, right? It. I mean, Checked seriously. all the boxes. <laughs> the only thing I'll add, thank you so much, uh, team panel, for such great answers. I would just add to um, to network, right? So there's lots of different organizations. There's in the Bay Area, um, there are loads. I'm not going to name drop because I'll forget a lot and then feel embarrassed, but use, I'll name drop this, like use LinkedIn to find some groups. And there are loads of different groups that come together to um, talk about what kinds of jobs are open, what kinds of skills might be needed, and just really connect with people to figure out where you might fit best. I mean, I think lots of folks I've found, especially back to Debbie's point about um, people just being really kind and generous. I've found that people are really generous um, with their time uh, and people are open to informational interviews. So if there's someone you admire and you want to learn a little bit more about how they got where they are or whether or not they might be hiring or what their organization is like, reach out, it can't hurt, right? Um, reach out and see if they might be open to an informational interview. So that's another, another plug I'll put out there. Um, so with that, I'm gonna let um, the panelists say any last words that you'd like oh, to share. Can I, can oh, yeah, I say ahead. there were a couple questions that I thought were really interesting. One totally. said we didn't mention plastics and I think that would be remiss. So yep. I would love to hear from my colleagues what they're thinking about plastics. And the second is about public-private partnerships. And I think because this panel is both, I'd be really curious um, what my private sector colleagues feel about public-private partnerships. Uh, so Absolutely. I'll just say Let's that I'm a big believer in public-private partnerships. And we've got lots of examples of Business Council on Climate Change and, um, and all sorts of work that we do with our Green Business Program. And I hate plastics. So, and I am really um, down with single-use plastics. And I'm so, we're, we're working on trying to figure out what it, our next move is on that. So. Anyway, but Christina and Laura, what do you think? I'm happy to jump in. Um, and Laura, you want to round us out. So um, also believe strongly in public-private partnerships. I'll just give one really quick, quick example. Um, 
Gap Inc. partnered with USAID, USAID uh, and Gap Inc. are focused on water resilience uh, and piloting a couple uh, pretty big programs in India where um, it services women and women are often responsible for not only the um, the work uh, in the factories to make these clothes that we're wearing, um, but also uh, taking care of their homes. And um, sanitation and wash is, is really, 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 really important and much needed in a lot of these areas in uh, remote and rural India. And so I'm really proud of the work that Gap Inc. has done, and that's an example of something that I think could be modeled and scaled. And so public-private partnerships, I think, are really, really important to get important programmatic um, pilots up and off the ground. Um, I really only have the OMG acronym regards plastics. Um, I'm kind of horrified and it's, it's hard for me to breathe when I think about it. So um, I think plastics right now are important in retail and we're seeing them dialed up. Um, one of the challenges we had um, is certainly in retail is everything comes in plastic in your plastic mailer, in your plastic bag that's in the plastic mailer um, with a hanger. Um, and we don't have good infrastructure uh, to deal with it. So um, I'm just going to ground right now and breathe um, on the plastic topic. Yeah, I'd say what I can say to the plastic topic is just like a few things that relate to Google, but they're not specific to the, you know, addressing the increased use of single-use plastics in COVID. Um, we um, have a, an effort to increase use of recycled plastic in our consumer hard, hardware devices, so things like our Pixel phone or Google Home devices or Nest thermostats. Um, so we have a target that by 2022, all of our um, new products will contain post-consumer recycled plastic. And um, incorporating post-consumer recycled plastic into consumer hardware devices is significantly more challenging than incorporating plastic into a lower grade um, product like a single-use plastic item, for example, a beverage container. So that actually has been quite a journey in order to first work with suppliers to develop a supply chain of high-quality resin that can be used in those uh, in those consumer hardware devices. And so we're really proud of, of that um, uh, progress that we've made there. Um, and I think I had a second example and it's escaped me at the moment. So I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that there and then mention that in terms of the public private partnerships. Um, we Google has so, so many partnerships across all of our business units and product areas. I mean, we're ultimately a, a, a data company, a company that, that our mission is to make information accessible and useful. And in order to do that, we partner with many, many, many data partners around the world. Um, and specifically on the sustainability front, um, we have in particular our, our team that works on our Google Maps and Google Earth uh, products organizations, NGOs, research institutes, and governments as well on a number of products that help to um, enable sustainability. And just one example that I'll mention is we have a tool called the Environmental Insights Explorer, um, whereby um, we enable cities to calculate their greenhouse gas emissions footprint using data that's garnered in Google Maps. So for example, it gets trips data from um, all of the traffic information that Google Maps is is tracking um, with all the different modes of transport. We figured out a methodology to translate that into an emissions footprint from transportation for cities. And then we look at the buildings um, profiles uh, within a city in terms of like estimated square footage of the building and where it is and everything. And, and then do similar 
similar estimates. And so we can provide this tool, the Environmental Insights Explorer, provides a greenhouse gas emissions footprint estimate for a city. Um, and that was a tool that was developed because we had um, heard from a, a collection of thousands of cities around the world that this was one of the things that they specifically wanted help on. And a lot of cities, I think the stat um, is something to the effect of uh, of the cities that have committed to reducing their emissions only something like less than 20% of them have actually set a target because in order to set a target, you need a baseline greenhouse gas emissions footprint and the work to create that greenhouse gas emissions footprint is actually time consuming and requires certain expertise that a lot of municipalities just don't have people that are able to do. So even though a lot of cities have made these commitments around greenhouse gas emissions, they're actually one of their um, challenges in achieving it is sort of step one, creating that greenhouse gas emissions baseline. Um, so that is where that that tool is um, is providing some value. And then similarly, there's other aspects of the tool where, for example, um, we have a another tool called Project Sunroof, which um, puts together an estimate of the amount of energy that can be generated by solar um, given a rooftop. So it looks at things like the shape of a roof, size of a roof, its orientation to the sign, whether or not it's shaded, et cetera, and puts together an an estimate. So then cities can use that information amalgamated at a municipal level to calculate how much energy could be generated from rooftop solar in that city. So those two insights together in this tool, as well as some other planning features that enable cities to, for example, adjust rates of commuting so they can like adjust how many commuters go via, you know, vehicle versus transit versus cycling and walking and see the impact that it would have on the emissions in their city. Um, that's that's been a really strong partnership that we had. It's a tool that was developed um, with a collaboration of mayors around the world, and that's I think just one example of the strong private and public partnerships that, that are out there. Thanks, Laura. I'd forgotten about Environmental Insights Explorers. I am I am ready to play with it some more tomorrow. So thank you for reminding me, <laughs> um, panelists. You are incredible leaders. Thank you so much for all that you do every day to make our people better, our planet better, and just all around rock stars. So uh, let's blow up the chat with some gratitude for these ladies. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next Conversations podcast coming soon. If you have a story that needs to be shared, we'd love to hear from you. For more information on Shack 15 and our community, you can email info at shack15.com, connect with us on Instagram, or visit our website at shack15.com.